0: Everybody and welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies. I'm Jason Schulman. We've got a great show for you today. My guest is Saskia Kunin Snyder, who teaches at the University of South Carolina. Here to talk about her new book, Building a Public Judaism Synagogues and Jewish Identity in Nineteenth Century Europe, published in twenty thirteen by Harvard University Press. Saskia, welcome. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies. I'm Jason Shulman. We've got a great show for you today. My guest is Saskia Kunin-Snyder, who teaches at the University of South Carolina. Here to talk about her new book, Building a Public Judaism, Synagogues and Jewish Identity in 19th Century Europe, published in 2013 by Harvard University Press. Saskia, welcome to New Books in Jewish Studies.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well,
0: it's great to have you. So, Saskia, this book is about the 19th century, um, but we we sort of need to understand earlier period what modernity meant uh, for the Jews is there sort of a general story that you can tell us about what the transition was like from the medieval period to the modern period for Jews
1: yeah I mean it's I of course approach this from an aesthetic point of view um, and from an architectural point of view and um, so when we look at from at that angle um, what we see in, in mostly in northern and western Europe is that Jews in the Middle Ages build their uh, religious buildings and synagogues, as this book focuses on, um, in very, what we may call private ways, in a very kind of restricted sense, um, and not in a very public way. And so most synagogues and synagogue architecture were very modest. Um, Jews tended to build very small inconspicuous buildings that focus much more on the interior than on the exterior. Um, and that had a number of, of good reasons for why they did so. Most Jews were poor, didn't have the resources to build, and um, they usually couldn't own the land, although the Netherlands is a is a strong exception to that. And um, there was also no desire to really publicize or celebrate publicly Judaism, and that changes in the 19th century. Um, and that changes mostly because of um, changing socioeconomic conditions of Jews, um, emancipation of Jews, where we see a transition from from building in a very private sense to a much more public way. Um, and some of that is expressed in monumental buildings, although certainly not all of those. And so all of a sudden we see that Jews and Judaism um, becomes very public. They become kind of publicly present and visual um, in cities, and that that happens across Europe, and my book focuses particularly on northern and Western Europe, particularly on London, Berlin, um, paris, and amsterdam
0: mm-hmm. so so for two millennia, really, synagogues were small, you said inconspicuous, um maybe the exception is the the golden age of Spain, but we 'll put that aside. um you know the, there were rules about the heights of synagogues, and then in the nineteenth century, we see the rise of these ornate public. Um, spaces in the center of the city. Um, so, so what 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 is going on there? Why are these Why are some of these um, buildings getting built?
1: Well, in part because uh, what we see is that Jews begin to have the resources to build, and so most or many I shouldn't say most, but many Jews become part of the middle class, um, and there's an, a desire, there's a kind of an ambition culturally and socially. Um, to become um, uh, more present and to show, and particularly in the German sense and in the French sense, to, to show to non-Jews that um, they are religiously respectable and um, in and kind of in very public ways. And so um, some of these buildings becomes quite ornate and in very uh, very visual places. So if you would look at Berlin, for instance, um, early designs, by the building committee, um, or the building committee actually rejected early proposals because the buildings weren't um, visual enough, they weren't, uh, you couldn't see them as well as they, as Jews really wanted to, and so we see that they build a, 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 the biggest synagogue in the world at the time, um, the Oranienburger Straße Synagogue in Berlin, built in 1866, that that um, is actually um, they want it to be visual from multiple angles in the city, and they actually talk about this quite explicitly. And so, um, Jews become visible not merely in these in in the field of um, kind of intellectual fields in literature, um, in the free professions, but also aesthetically. Judaism and Jews become part of the urban scene in ways that they hadn't been before.
0: Mm-hmm. I want to follow up on something you mentioned earlier, which is public-private distinction. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what it meant in terms of synagogue life, but also sort of more broadly, um, that seems to be an important dichotomy sort of in European and Jewish thought. Mm-hmm.
1: Absolutely. And the synagogue changes in function in that respect, in that um, the synagogue becomes used for particular functions that it was never really used for before. Uh, for instance, weddings. Weddings tended to be held outside, or and, and synagogues were not really, um there was no celebration inside, like in the Christian churches, the celebration of the wedding. And and so that um, becomes part of, of the synagogue experience too. And, and we see this in London, for instance, there's this wonderful illustration in a Jewish chronicle um, about this uh, wedding from the Rothschild family, where women and men celebrate under the chuppah, they celebrate in the, in the prayer hall um, um, a, a wedding, an important wedding that is up that is opulent ornate, um, and so we begin to see that because of these new functions for the synagogue, that the design of them is affected by that. And so we begin to see that synagogues become they they add, for instance, a um, <coughs> excuse me a um, a hallway for people to mingle when they come, uh, wives and husbands, when they come and mingle. Um, there is a separate uh, section. For weddings, um, they sometimes have the disappearance of uh, the galleries where women and men used to be separated, um, where the galleries disappear and now the interior becomes mixed. Um, and of course, all of that is influenced by the rise of reform, particularly in Central Europe in the 19th century. And so, because of these new bourgeois functions, kind of Jews showing their cultural refinement to not only themselves but also to to others that um, the interior is dramatically affected by that.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it did send a message. I mean, even if a Jew in Berlin didn't attend the synagogue, the building itself was sort of a symbol, mm-hmm. right? Um, and t- t- tell us about the, um, the temple. Uh, you know, not the temple, just a temple. That seems to be sort of related to uh, reform and, and presentation of, of Judaism as, as a religion and not sort of as something else.
1: Absolutely. I mean, synagogue seems to be um, only what the scholar uh, Dominique Chavasse called merely a function, right, that you could have a synagogue service anywhere. You didn't really need a, per- a separate building for that. You can have it in your own living room as long as you had a minion. And so the goal was always to, um, to, the hope was always for the restoration of the temple in Jerusalem. And so that changes in the 19th century as well when Jews begin to see their own Heimat, their own homeland, whether that was France or Germany or Great Britain, as their permanent place, as their Zion, um, so to speak. And so the synagogue itself then becomes their kind of permanent, and it becomes a much more sacred place to them, both sacred as well as secular, where they can show their, their bourgeois respectability. Um, and so the synagogue itself, ironically, becomes actually much more important to Jews aesthetically and also as a function within their middle class lives, um, even though they become also more secular. And so that's the kind of the strange irony is that the more secular Jews become, the more important many of these monumental synagogues become as well. And so that's um, kind of part of your answer, I suppose.
0: You you say that buildings are fascinating storytellers. I'm curious in what way. have people studied synagogues before and and how did you sort of think to look at them slightly differently? Yeah, I mean, uh,
1: synagogues are of course, I mean, there are a lot of table books about synagogues and there are also serious studies about synagogues. Um, but they tended to be written by architectural historians who are very interested in style and, um, and sometimes location, but interior and exterior um, styles. And so, oftentimes what I find lacking in those studies is that there's no real attention being paid to what happens around the building or inside of the building and the people that use them and what happened to um, the period and the places and the people before the building was actually actualized or actually built. And so the discourses, to use kind of this academic term, the discourses surrounding the building, even before it was built, are really fascinating. And so we also need to look at these buildings not as somehow kind of silent or dead um, or quiet. They actually are great storytellers because they they are repositories of memory and they, they actually tell us a lot about what Jews, how they wanted to um, express themselves aesthetically in the urban um, sphere. And so um, we know, for instance, we can t- tell a lot about what members of a building committee had in mind and where they wanted it to be located. There are great debates about the location of a building. Um, there are great debates about whether they should include an organ um, in the building, in the interior of the building, to, um, as a way to Christianize or Westernize or update or modernize uh, the service. And so what that says about them um, is something that that many Jews had opinions about, and they they talked about, and we can learn a lot from them. So in other words, um, by looking purely at form, or purely at architectural style, I think is limiting. I think we need to look at other dimensions, um, demographic patterns, social, economic ambitions, um, political situations. We see that Berlin, for instance, with the lack of political rights um, in the 1850s and 1860s, when they are contemplating building The oranienburg Strasse Synagogue, the political um, struggle, Jews not having um, been politically emancipated yet, um, had a very um, strong effect on where they built, how they built, um, what message they wanted to send to the public. Very, very different from Amsterdam, across the border, less than 400 miles uh, west of them. Mm -hmm. The political situation is entirely different, um, and the building history is entirely different.
0: Right, so the book is arranged um, with sort of four long uh, chapters, each one a case study, and you mentioned the cities that you focus on, Berlin, London, Amsterdam, and Paris. Uh, let's start with Berlin, uh, and you've already said the name a couple of times, but maybe you can you can help me. It's the Orianenberger Strasse? Very good. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay. Um, and so maybe just start by telling us a little bit about the style uh, of the building. Mm-hmm. And it, it was interesting because it seems as though uh, the usual story we get about German Jews is that they were trying to be more German, less Jewish. But you say that the architecture actually uh, flips that on its head. How, how How so?
1: Well, it's a very exotic looking building. It's, a, uh, it's built in a Moorish style, no, although not exclusively so. There are also very kind of German classic elements in there. But it's a very ornate, flamboyant, um, uh, large, beautiful, absolutely stunning building. And so it is a bit odd that German Jews at the time really wanted to be seen as German, right? As as um, what they called Bürger, as, as citizens of the country, and then they decide to build in a style that's entirely foreign to to German culture, and so they build in a very Oriental and a very un-German style. And so that's um, and I argue in the book that that is in part a result with fascination of uh, um, uh, of colonial fascination across Europe at the time and uh, interest in things exotic but it's also that they were trying to find a Jewish aesthetic in a way that wasn't associated with Christianity like uh, the Gothic style for instance was with with, which was closely uh, related to Catholicism um, and that they wanted a style for themselves, and they the the interpretation I think at the time was is that yes we are Jewish and therefore we are religiously different, but that in every other way we are completely German. But that did not was not expressed in the same way by non-Jews at the time who saw the Oranienburger Straße synagogue as a reflection. Um, of Jew and for- Jewish foreigners is that they are strangers and they are, in fact, different than us. And so um, there was a real miscommunication in that regard where, where German Jews saw themselves as, as entirely German who happened to be of a different faith, but German in any other way or every other way. And But that was not the interpretation that we see among um, non-Jews who, who saw it basically as an uh, affirmation of, um, of Jewish difference.
0: Right. And so Germany is sort of a, you know, a, a unique um, national context because the Jews were trying to demonstrate sort of their worthiness uh, as citizens. England is is a totally different story. Mm-hmm. Uh, there they were trying to uh, protect the status quo, as you say. So tell us briefly about um, why the political context is different. And then um, why did why did the British Jews favor these purpose built synagogues?
1: Yeah. British Jews, of course, are politically emancipated. And, and so there is no real question or ambiguity about their political status. There's nothing that they are trying to prove. And so when we take that into consideration together with the different um, sense at the time in Britain of what was considered beautiful, right? They, many Jews and non-Jews considered the Oranienburger Straße synagogue in Berlin just way too Flamboyant, it was over the top, it was unnecessarily big, and so that was not considered beautiful in Great Britain and so what was considered beautiful there was Victorian in a way Victorian modesty or aesthetic modesty and restraint uh, trying to fit in so most Jews in in London built in a variety of different styles that that very much blended in with um, uh, the urban environment and urban environment around them. And so um in that sense we don't see the need for an architecture of emancipation um as some scholars have called it because they didn't really need it and so we we see that they're um that not only do they not build on this in um how should i put it they didn't build on the scale and in the kind of flamboyancy that we see in central europe Um, And that also had to do with demographics. Most Jews in London um, were very much spread out and they lived in different enclaves. And to have one giant big synagogue in the center of the city where not everybody had easy access to that because they lived elsewhere didn't make a whole lot of sense. And so they built instead rather small or smaller um, purpose-built synagogues in a variety of different neighborhoods. And so what we see instead of an, an opulent Monumental building is actually um, what what we might call district synagogues.
0: Mm-hmm. And as opposed to, um, Ber- excuse me, as opposed to Berlin, in England or in London, uh, so the sort of modest architectural adaptations kind of mirrored the more modest reform changes, right? Is is that right?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's we don't, and this is also related to their political status. Is that because? Anglo-Jews didn't need to prove themselves, we also don't see the strength of reform that we see um, and the need to, to modernize Judaism in a sense that we see in Germany at the time. And so what happened, and this happened in the Netherlands as well, as well as to England, is that Um, that reform remains very weak there and they're mostly um, remain orthodox or at least rather conservative and that um, we see that in in Western Europe as a whole.
0: So let's talk about um, what's going on in the Netherlands and chapter 3 focuses on Amsterdam and Amsterdam as opposed to the first two um, cities we've talked about was not into building uh, in the 19th century they had their Sephardi and Ashkenazi synagogues, and they were not um, interested in, in building new um, buildings, and that has to do with the different path to modernization that the the Jews of Amsterdam went through. So, so tell us a little bit about why there wasn't a need um, for the same type of building in the 19th, in 19th century Amsterdam. You know,
1: Amsterdam is really an exception to this uh, to this story of, of Jews becoming. Um, kind of aesthetically prominent. And so because Amsterdam Jews didn't build, and they they do so for a number of reasons, in part because they have a very, very small um, Jewish bourgeoisie. And so uh, most Jews in Amsterdam are working class at the time. And so their move to becoming middle class happens in the early 20th century. And so for a very pragmatic reason is that they didn't build is because they didn't have the resources for it. They didn't have the money for it. And there was... A, a kind of a um, priority to use the resources that they did have for poor relief and for um, for building a, a Jewish hospital, for instance, that happens in the 1880s. And so they, their priorities lay elsewhere than um, what we see in across the border in Germany or in, in London. Um, and so they're also already, like you mentioned, they already had their monumental synagogues uh, dating from the 1670s that were still in very good condition were still used and so um there there wasn't a need i mean there was a need at the turn of the century and do we do see appeals like what when are we going to build in a way that we see across the border um but there was a very clear response from uh, jewish leadership at the time is that look, we simply don't have the resources for it, and we don't really, um, it's not a priority for us. And so politically, they also didn't need to make the statement. Uh, Jews were quite comfortable in their political um, uh, uh, status. And so it's a combination of lack of resources, no real pressure to build. Um, and what we see instead is that Jews, um, they build what we call small geyver synagogues, um, the kind of small autonomous synagogues that are independent, that function independent from the main um, Jewish community. And so we see um, a a rise of these very small, these very small synagogues, instead of the the monumental buildings that that, um, arise across the border.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, And then finally you turn to Paris. Uh, Why was Paris different? Maybe you can tell us a little bit about the community and about the the state, uh, the bureaucracy. um, And... It seemed like it was more, just more subdued. Mm -hmm.
1: Which was surprising. I mean, you think about um, Parisian Jews and about French Jews as a whole as, um, you know, they were the first ones emancipated. Um, They lived in a very, what we may call, liberal environment. And so we may think of of Parisian Jews in the 19th century as, you know, as a kind of the prototype for people to build on a large scale. Um, And what we find instead is that. Because Judaism is considered a state religion, one of the three state religions is that um, the state is actually very much involved and not merely the state because of state funding that they receive for building, but also the city and the municipalities, um, local architects that are assigned to um, particular what they call arrondissement, these different city districts. And so it is a very, very bureaucratically dense process. That um, uh, Baron Haussmann, for instance, is much to my surprise when I started re- doing this research, is that Haussmann, who we associate with the, the modern or modernization of Paris as a whole, is actually deeply involved in building of synagogues, um, and he had much say about it. And so, what we see in Paris is that there is a bureaucracy and a red tape process that we don't see anywhere else that really um, determines how synagogues are built where they are built, um, who pays for what, uh, what style, and most of these architects, and this counts for Europe as a whole, most of these architects were Christians. Uh, we don't see Jewish architects yet at this time um, uh, on, a, on a large scale, and most of Jewish architects actually um, build in very um, uh, kind of vernacular styles. But they are uh, most of these architects of the big buildings um, in Europe are are Christians. And so in Paris... The story is also, again, as I mentioned earlier, that synagogues are, are great storytellers. Each of these synagogues have very different stories to tell us and very different um, uh, histories about these local communities. And um, I think that's one of the the surprising outcomes of the book, was that even though all of these Jewish communities, whether it's Paris, London, Berlin, or Amsterdam, live in a fairly close proximity of each other, all of these situations and histories Um, were really determined by local conditions, uh, national policies um, and socioeconomic uh, conditions of Jews at the time. And they have very different stories to tell us. And and that was uh, really a a, a very kind of insightful, but also very fun process to um, to happen.
0: Mm -hmm. And so the, the Jews in London, for instance, knew what had happened in Berlin and they just said, no, we don't need that, right? I mean, it seems like all the participants knew what the others were doing and they just sort of tailored it to their own situations.
1: Absolutely. And, and so one of the um, benefits that came out looking at these architectural histories and these building histories is that we also get a sense of um, how anglo jews how they feel about jews on the continent for instance and they have very strong opinions about this and we learn how berlin jews what they think about dutch jews and they think they're just you know stuck in the middle ages basically um and that they're intellectually lazy and that they are kind of really not up to par with um with the community in berlin and so we get it we also because they like you said they know what's happening who is building what and um we see this in building journals, for instance, that they are reporting on these inaugurations of these beautiful buildings in Berlin, um, and so they are quite aware of of, um, of what is happening elsewhere. And and so the newspapers were a great source of information to get a sense of um, what they were what they were thinking about it.
0: Does thinking about synagogue building and synagogue architecture. Um, change or inform the way we think about 19th century Jewish uh, European Jewish history more generally?
1: Um, I think so. I'd like to think so. Um, I think in one way, and Robin Judd actually talked about this in her book as well a couple of years ago, that we have this sense that when Jews are modernizing in Europe, that they become more secular and that religiosity becomes less important. And um, I don't think that's necessarily true. Um, I think that religiosity remained very important, and, and that just because Jews became modern does not necessarily mean that they became less religious um, or that religiosity ceased to be important. I don't think that was the case. And so, uh, I think there is, um, in that sense, that I'm I'm hoping that that will be uh, kind of a useful asterisk. I'm not sure is that an English word. <laughs> <laughs> kind of a useful way to think about modern Jewish history that um, that we have to keep that in mind that that secularization or modernization doesn't necessarily mean that um, that Jews became you know that that religiosity was no longer of any importance to them.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and part of your um, you know using these four case studies is a mo- is uh, an example of comparative analysis and i think what you're sort of trying to say is that um you know modern jewish history really should be looked at across national boundaries you you can't you can't just understand the german experience um it's better to look you know at europe as a whole and see what each national context was like is that right
1: i think so i think that um and this has been uh, of course, this is not anything particularly new. I mean, there are a lot of historians who came before me who have argued precisely that that there's not one model, right? There's not one model of modernization, and then, yes, there are shared patterns, but that um, it it turns out that place actually is a very important component, and um, that that makes the process of modernization um, that can be actually very diverse and that there's a lot of variety within that. And so there are a lot of different models that we see. And I think by doing comparative research, I think that becomes particularly clear and we can see that, okay, yes, modernization happened, recurred across Europe, but in very, very different ways and ambitions and political uh, status and um, socioeconomic um, changes, all of that took place in very very different contexts with different results, and so it's. Um, I, I think that that can be helpful, absolutely.
0: Well, Saskia, we've taken up a lot of your time. So, any parting thoughts you'd like to share, and uh, what are you working on next?
1: Um, I'm working on a new project that is absolutely unrelated to what I've done before, um, and that is the although it's still um, located in the 19th century, I stick to the 19th century. But I'm looking at the international diamond trade, and um, I'm it's a basically a transatlantic study of uh, the the involvement of Jews in the the diamond trade. And so I follow the diamond from South Africa to uh, London, where they're redistributed to manufacturing places like Amsterdam and Antwerp. And um, I look at Jewish involvement in that, um, in retail and manufacturing, in um, distribution, and uh, finally in, in advertisements and in sales. And so, um, it takes me back to some of these places I've looked at before amsterdam is um the diamond industry is crucial in nineteenth century Amsterdam. over fifty percent of Dutch Jews in Amsterdam um were reliant uh, in direct or indirect ways on the diamond industry, and so it's it's a very important component of Dutch Jewish history, but also London and South Africa um, and then uh, Antwerp and New York are very um, really important places. So I'm trying to kind of see the networks um, in place and um, uh, see what in a way it's, it is another study of an object, right, not a building, but this time it's a diamond and see what it can tell us. Also as a storyteller, I suppose, um, what it can tell us about uh, the Jewish experience in the 19th century.
0: Saskia, that sounds like a great project. I want to thank you for being on the show today. The book is Building a Public Judaism, Synagogues and Jewish Identity in 19th Century Europe, published in 2013 by Harvard University Press. The author is Saskia Kunin-Snyder. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.